Hey there, and welcome to part three of our series, Faith, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Now, if you're wondering if there's any significance between the title of the series and the order of speakers, uh, you know, John Cook, the good, Paul Morgan, the bad, and John, the, you know, well, you're, you're probably not wrong. But getting into things, I'd like to ask you a question just to kick things off. What do you wonder? What do you wonder? You know, for me, I wonder, I wonder why my mom thinks something is still good just because it's been in the fridge. It's the cheese mom. It's like seven years old. We've got to let it go. And I wonder, and if you're like me, you wonder when we'll see an office TV show reunion or a movie. I'm ready anytime. On a more serious note, you know, I, I, wonder, I wonder what heaven will be like. You know, I, for those of us that believe in God, I think we all wonder what heaven will be like, don't we? We wonder if we'll see the people that we love. What would they, what would they look like? Will we be able to meet famous people? All important questions, important questions. And you know, I wonder what my grandparents will be like. Like, will they be the version of themselves when they were younger? Will they be like middle-aged? Or will they be the version that I last saw them as? You know, I wonder how all of that kind of works. And maybe you don't go to church, or maybe you do. But you're watching this, and maybe you're wondering how we could be so naive to believe that heaven even exists. Or to even believe that you know, that we believe in this idea of God. But I think that we all wonder about things, don't we? And let me just say, it, it doesn't matter if you're a theist or a non-theist, if you believe in God or if you don't believe in God, we can't help but wonder what happens when we go. When we lose a loved one, we can't help but wonder, is there more? And so we wonder, but you see, we, we wonder through a frame of reference. And what I mean by that is that our wonder, our curiosity, our interpretation of things in this life is filtered through, well, this life. Pain. Our childhood. And let's just be real for a moment because I think as much as we want to, as much as we want to think that we've moved past it, that we're better than it, that we've left it in our past, that we're not letting past pains or letting our childhood influence how we wonder, the reality is that we wonder through a frame of reference that's full of life experiences, don't we? Now, the exciting part about that if you're a Christian, and maybe the strange part if you're not, is that God sent someone to our side of the frame to serve as a reference for us. Isn't that something? And so over the last two weeks, we've been looking at this, we've been looking at this book in the Bible, and it's not even really a book, it's essentially like a long sermon. And it was written by a person, likely the Apostle Paul, although we don't know for sure, but it was, it was so important so important for these first century Christians. It was such an important message that they, they copied it and they distributed it. 
and eventually it made its way into our Christian Bible. And in his attempt to reach out to Jewish people in the community who believed in Jesus but were beginning to wander away, he made this powerful observation. He said this, he said that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He's saying, look, there's going to be a lot of distractions. There's going to be, there's going to be a lot of stuff that, that clouds your frame. A lot of things that can happen in your life that can alter your frame of reference. But we are to fix our eyes on the person of Jesus. Not the things that did or, or, or didn't happen for us in this life, but to fix our eyes on Jesus. So if you've, if you've wandered away, if you've maybe wandered and wandered away, if you're on the, the cusp of reaching for the exit door of faith, and maybe you already have or you know someone who is, I want to ask you a question. What do you wonder? And what frame of reference are you wondering through? And if you're reaching for that door, if you're reaching for that exit door of faith, I want to ask you, what was the faith that you lost, the faith that you're losing, the faith that is slowly fading away? What was it fixed on? And what was it fastened to? And I guess I want you to consider this. Would you spend time refocusing, refastening, and fix your eyes on Jesus? Not church, not Christians, not your pastor, not the way that you were raised, and not necessarily the way that you were taught. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you know why I think people have a hard time with the concept of faith? It, it's, it's partly because of the many misconceptions about what faith really is. You see, faith, it, it, it's not a superpower. It, it's not like the force. And faith is also not a formula. But what it is can be found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And the writer of this sermon, he includes this because in the previous chapter, he's writing to these believers about their need to persevere. And faith is the means of doing so. And so, to ensure that both the writer and the reader, that they're on the same page, verse 1 defines it. Now, it's not a formal definition of what faith is, but rather what faith does. And it says this, it says, now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And to prove, to prove that this, this definition isn't just a mere theory, the writer illustrated faith by telling stories of Old Testament believers. And in the chapter, it calls them the ancients. They did what the readers need to do. They did what you and I need to do, being persevered by faith. Now, the common denominator for all of these Old Testament characters in Hebrews chapter 11 was that all of them had a good reason for not persevering. All of them had a good reason 
for returning to the life that they had before their encounter with God. But none of them did. And the key phrase in this chapter, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe occurring 19 times, is this. By faith. By faith. And in this, I guess you could call it a mini-series titled By Faith, the writer shows us characters that we see ourselves in through, through the good, but through the bad, and through the ugly. And one of those characters that we're going to focus on today is Abraham. And it's where we see the pinnacle of his faith. And we're going to get there. He's a giant when we look at the heroes of faith. But what this series helps us understand and see is that these people that, you know, that we prop up, that we celebrate as being giants and pillars of faith, they wandered. They certainly had their good, but they had their bad, and some of it was just downright ugly. And Abraham was no exception. You see, God, God wanted Abraham, and at the time, Abram, so don't get confused if I use those two names, he wanted Abram to go to Canaan. And, you know, why leave home? Like, maybe his mom's cooking wasn't great. Maybe his brother kept wearing all of his clothes. My brother knows what that's like. But it's really where we see the first expression of God's great promise to Abraham in what we know now as the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this covenant, it consists of three provisions or promises. And the first is land. The first is land. The second is a great nation. And the third is a blessing. So Abraham, with, with some commendable obedience, he goes to Canaan. But you see, that obedience is short-lived. You see, there was a famine in the land. And when that happened, Abram decided to take matters into his own hands. And he decided instead to go to Egypt. Now, he doesn't stay in Canaan. He thought that he could escape the famine by going to Egypt. But Abram realized as soon as they were about to enter the city, he's like, oh man, I, I've, got, I've got a beautiful wife. And if the Egyptians see her, they'll kill me and they'll let her live. So he comes up with a plan. He says, look, Sarai, look, just tell them that you're my sis and I'll be treated well and my life will be spared. And so their plan went ahead. Abraham was treated well. He was treated so well. But then Sarai was taken to the palace, and she was then taken as the Pharaoh's wife. So instead of trusting that God would, would bless and provide for him in the midst of that famine, Abram adopted a course of, I guess you could call it, situational ethics. Or in other words, his frame of reference changed. You see, first he demonstrated a lack of faith in God's provision. Like, he, he, he left Canaan and he went to Egypt. And then he demonstrated a lack of faith in God's protection, prompting him to lie and getting Sarah to lie, Sarai to lie as well. So rather, rather than loving his wife as himself, as he should, rather than considering her welfare and guarding her honor, Abram was concerned with his own welfare. And so in his, in his self-interest, in his weak faith, 
Abram remained silent, not only when Sarai was taken to the palace, but he remained silent when she was taken as the Pharaoh's wife as well. Wow. Folks, this is the ugliness that we were talking about. Not me. This is the ugliness that we're talking about. Because Abram, Abram didn't just disobey God. That's a big one. He disobeyed God, but he also dishonored his wife. He put her in a dangerous situation. He lied about their marital relationship, and he also caused the sin of adultery on part of his wife and the Pharaoh. Now, the point of this isn't just to rag on Abraham, on Abram. It's not, it's not to just single him out as more depraved than anybody else, because let's just be honest. What would you or what would I have done? If Abram's frame of reference were ours, how would we wander? Something to think about. You see, Abram's actions are merely symptomatic of the human condition, isn't it? It's it's what we do. And make no mistake, this is here for a very important reason, a very important reason. You see, the writer could have could have skipped all of this. He could have gone right from the Abrahamic covenant, this good thing, and he could have skipped to something else. But the reason this was left in, and the reason that the Bible, the Bible doesn't hide the ugly, is to make it clear that God gave the promise in the presence of demerit. And what I mean by that is that God justifies the ungodly. God knew that Abraham would wander. He knew that Abram would wander. But since this was true of Abram, so was it true for us. So was it true for you. God extends, he extends his love to us in spite of us. Now, Abram's story obviously doesn't end there, but that was a real low for him. That was a real low for him. And we're going to fast forward a little bit. Now, Abraham, meaning father of a multitude, and Sarah, that well, they have a son of their own named Isaac, the one that God had actually promised Abraham and Sarah, the one that would be the heir. And it's in this account from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, and from Genesis 22, that we see demonstrated in life and action the faith that was defined for us. Not what faith is, but what, what faith does. And here it is again. Confidence. It's confidence in what we hope for an assurance about what we do not see. And can I just preface this by saying, what we're about to hear, if you've never heard it before, it's weird. What we're about to hear, and maybe some of us have already heard about this before, the story, it's strange, it's weird, and it can be uncomfortable, it can be difficult, it can be really difficult to make sense of at a glance. And it's a time when God tested Abraham. We read, this is God talking to Abraham. He's saying, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. That's some weird stuff. I warned you. Now, it's easy to take this. It's easy to look at this and say, see? 
what loving God would require someone to do that. And I get that. It's, it's so barbaric for us to even understand. We filter this through our frame of reference and we wonder why. So if you're like me, this might cause a lot of questions for you. It might cause you to wonder. But if you track with me a little bit more, maybe it'll help. So you see, early the next morning, Abraham, he got up, he loaded his donkey, he took two servants, he took Isaac, and they set out for the place that God had told him. And on the third day, that's important, remember that. On the third day, Abraham saw the place in the distance. He put the wood on Isaac's back, which is another thing to remember. The imagery here is powerful. And then the two of them went up the mountain. And Isaac stopped and he, and he, and he spoke up and he said, he said this, he said, Father. And he replied and he said, Yes, my son. Are you seeing something here? Well, let's keep going. You see, Isaac says, he says, look, the, the wood and the fire is here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Reasonable question. And Abraham answers and he says this, he says, God himself will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb. And so they continued. And finally, when they reached the place that God had told them about Abraham, he built an altar there. And he arranged the wood on it, and then, and then he took his son, he, he bound him, he laid him on top of the wood. And then Abraham, he reached out his hand, and he took the knife, and in, in that moment, as he was ready to slay his son, the angel of the Lord stopped him, and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld him from me, your son, your only son. And in that moment, Abraham, he looks up and he sees a ram caught by its horns and he uses it instead as a sacrifice, a burnt offering instead of his son. And the angel, repeating the covenant that God made with Abraham, says that he will be blessed, and through him, the world will be blessed. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. But when we get back to the question of wonderment, that question of why, why was this necessary? Why be so cruel to Abraham? Why sacrifice? At a glance, this can cause some serious questions in someone's faith, but let's deconstruct. And all of this context helps us understand. You see, God didn't spring up sacrifice because he wanted that. But the reality was that they lived in a sacrificial culture. Sacrifices were a common thing. Child sacrifices were something that happened. Those that worshipped other gods would horrendously sacrifice their sons and daughters in fire. This was, this was real stuff that happened. But in Deuteronomy, it says that you should not worship the Lord your God in that way. So when God is asking Abraham to do this, yes, it's, it's a test of his faith. 
but it's also a way of God putting an end to this, putting an end to that. Now remember when Isaac asks his father where the, where the lamb is, Abraham answers him with confidence saying, God will provide the lamb. Now, people debate and they say that, look, Abraham is, he, he must have just told a white lie to his son so that he would just go along with the plan. I mean, could you imagine having to tell your child that you're about to do what Abraham is going to do? But that doesn't work, you see, because lying is lying. And such a sin in the context of a story of exemplary and strong faith, it just doesn't work. It doesn't fit. So I think we can have a degree of confidence that Abraham wasn't lying. Now the other alternative explanation is that Abraham meant and Isaac understood that an actual lamb would be used. Well, if, if that were the case, if I were Isaac laying on that altar on top of that wood, I would, with a little bit more force and sense of urgency, I would ask, where's the lamb, Pops? But what we can begin to see is that Abraham wasn't actually referring to any future provision of a lamb at all. God is providing the lamb. Isaac is the lamb that God was providing. And it's with this understanding that we see the pinnacle. We see, we see the pinnacle of Abraham's faith. Now, this story leaves us with two significant thoughts. On one hand, it shows us extraordinary, incredible, a moment of faith by both Abraham and Isaac. And on the other hand, this chapter gives us one of the most vivid prophecies of Jesus to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. Anywhere in the Old Testament. You see, Jesus, like Isaac, is described as a son. And you might be saying, like, well, like, yeah, of course. But the father willingly sacrificed him. His only son. His only son. The same phrase used to describe Isaac, Abraham's only son. And just as Isaac was the object of his father's love, so too Jesus was the object of his father's love. And the name Isaac, just like the name Jesus, was chosen by God. And that's, that's an extremely rare occurrence in Scripture. So it's the combined force of these parallels when we look at it, when we understand that there's this incredible link between Isaac and the Messiah, Jesus. And when we glance a little bit closer, we remember that Abraham arrived at the place of sacrifice on the third day, right? Remember that? Now the significance of this is that on this day, Abraham wouldn't just be sacrificing Isaac. But when we jump back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, we see that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You see, the, the basis for Abraham's strong faith was in God. 
because he gave him this unconditional promise where God says that, look, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Abraham's faith in God encompassed the possibility that God could restore life. Because God promised that, God promised to Abraham that Isaac, not some other son, that Isaac would be the one through whom the promise of a great nation will be fulfilled. I just, I love this stuff. I don't know about you. I hope you're tracking. I love this stuff because when we understand the text, when we see it as more than just something that can be uncomfortable or faith-shaking, when we readjust our frame of reference, we see the story in a different light. We see this character from the Old Testament as an example of faith, amazing faith, willingly ready to sacrifice his son, his only son, the one whom is, through whom his lineage would flow through. And it's because of this, and this is where I'm getting at, it's because Abraham's faith was in God. Abraham's faith was in God. His faith wasn't in the promise. His faith was in God. Remember, faith is the confidence that God is and will do what he promised to do. And what's amazing to me, what's absolutely incredible to me, is that God God made a promise to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus arrives on scene. Now let's remember that promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation. Now question for you, did did Abraham become a great nation? Now, it's not a trick question. Yeah, he, he did. In fact, he became, he became multiple nations. Now, how many of you can say the same? How many of you can think of someone else that had become a great nation? You probably can't, and probably the only name that comes to mind is Abraham. So, wow. Well, what a promise. We can check that one off. And the next one is, and I will bless you. Now, let me just say, if... If you become a nation, you can consider yourself blessed. Like, oh, like, hey, what did you do? Oh, I became a nation. Well, cool. Next one, I will make your name great. Huh. 4,000 years later, 4,000 years ago, and 4,000 years later, here we are today, halfway around the world, and we're here talking about Abraham. So I think God made Abraham's name great. And I think most of you even knew the name Abraham before you even started watching this. So I think that's just incredible. But here's one that I think takes it all. And you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Wow. Your nation is going to bless the entire earth. And he did, with his son, Jesus. So faith is simple, really. Faith is believing that God is, based on evidence, and faith is based on the fact that God will keep his promises. And I think that one of the reasons we have such a hard time with faith, with perhaps just the word, 
like it's some sort of spooky, magical thing. I think why people resist the definition of faith is because it leaves God in control. So I've got some good news for you. God is in control. And I'm so glad that God didn't answer my 15-year-old prayers. Like, I'd have like six dogs, I'd have a Porsche, and a ton of girlfriends. But the problem with this view of faith is that it leaves God in control. Because you see, like the pagans of old time, we want to get the gods to do our bidding. We want to get God to do something that God doesn't want to do. And when that happens, when we pray for that, when we hope for that, when we're just good little boys and good little girls, we lose faith. We lose faith that for some of us was founded on and based on something that was never to be based on to begin with. And here's why this is such a big deal. Here's why this is such a big deal to me, to us as a church, in our youth ministries, in our kids' ministries. Because you see, an entire generation is walking away from faith because the church has signed God's name to promises that God never made. So if you grew up with the vending machine version of God. You know, you put a prayer in, you get something out, it's transactional. Or the bad things never happen to good people kind of faith. Of course you're going to lose faith because that's not even Christian faith. That has nothing to do with the foundation of faith. God never promised that any of those things. But here's the amazing news. God did not demonstrate his love for you. And God did not demonstrate his concern for you by promising that nothing bad would ever happen to you. That every illness would be healed. Or by promising a flawless, perfect book. God's promise is more wonderful than any of those things. You see, the Apostle Paul, who he persecuted Christians. I mean, he wanted to stamp Christianity out. The same Paul who eventually became a follower of Jesus. And he wrote letters that became a part of our New Testament. He said it perfectly. And he said this. He said that, he said that God demonstrates his love for us. And it's not, about, it's not about making sure everything worked out for you or for me. But he says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's saying that while I was still a sinner, while I was trying to do things on my own terms, he's saying that while I am and while you are still a sinner, the fact that God knew that you would live and knew that you would still sin, yet he sent his son anyway to die for us. The trustworthiness, the wonderfulness of God was settled at the cross not an unanswered prayer. He came to our side of the frame so that the one thing that we would never have to worry about and wonder about was his love for us. That's the message. That's the gospel. And that's the invitation. 
And so I want to give us a time and give us a space for us to unfocus our life experiences that clutter our frame of reference and refocus our attention on the person of Jesus. Friends, this, this is the wonder that we should never lose. The wonder demonstrated at the cross, the wonder of his love for us. It's undeniable. It's unmistakably true. The evidence is overwhelming. God kept his promise. That's why a third of the world believes in the divinity of Jesus, that he is the son of God. This is exactly what God promised to Abraham and through Abraham. God kept his promise to the world and he kept his promise to you. So all of us, all of us have been invited. We are invited to fix our eyes on Jesus. So will you, will you fix your eyes on Jesus? And I want to invite you to do that. You'll see a button in the chat that says that I want to come home to Jesus. Would you click that? If you've wondered and if you've wandered, but you're ready to come home and fix your eyes on Jesus, then that button is for you. And we are celebrating with you. And maybe while you ponder making that decision, I want to share with you about one of the most astounding people of faith that I have encountered. Um, it was in 2019. Now, some of you know I've been working with kids for a long time, and that was, that was my last Sunday working in our kids' area, the kindergarten to grade five, after 11 years. So it was, a, it was an emotionally charged day. And as we were finishing our large group time, and as students were exiting, getting ready to go to their small group rooms, a, a young boy came up to me, and he, he couldn't have been older than seven years old. And he came up to me, and he said, he, he, just, he was just like, hey, John, like, how are you? And I'm like, hey, good, like, how are you doing? And he's like, it's been a tough week. He said, it's been a tough week. He said, my father has leukemia, and he has a bone marrow transplant uh, this next week. And I responded in that moment. I just said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's tough. But in that moment, he said something that has, that has stuck with me so far, and I think will for the rest of my life. He said this. He said, but you know what? I can trust God no matter what. He said, I can trust God no matter what. And it wasn't just a phrase that he conjured up. It wasn't just something that he came up with on the spot. But that was, you see, that was the bottom line in our lesson for that Sunday. That we can trust God no matter what. And here is this boy going through something unimaginable. Maybe something that many of you are going through right now. 
And here is this boy with faith that I would love to have one day. I can trust God no matter what. See, there are a lot of things to wonder about in this life. But the one thing that we don't have to wonder about is where we stand with God. You see, Esau Macaulay, he's an assistant prof at Wheaton College, and I saw one of his tweets, and he tweeted this, and I valued what he had to say about this. He said, you know, when Paul wanted to encourage Christians, he didn't say that their breakthrough was around the corner. Rather, he helped them to make sense of their suffering in light of the coming reign of Christ. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. You see, sometimes the breakthrough doesn't come. Christians get sick and die. And if I'm honest, I don't know what happened to that little boy's father. I don't. But sometimes Christians get sick and they die. We lose the job and we don't get a better one. But here's the thing. The resurrection and the transformation of all things remain our hope. Not victory over haters, but victory over death. With all the stuff that we don't know, and with all that we'll quite frankly, we'll never know, 2,000 years ago, a light broke through, and his name is Jesus. And he showed up on our side to serve as a reference for us. And the Apostle John, looking back on his time with Jesus, he says this, and I just love this. He says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And this is so real for John. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It didn't then, and it hasn't now. So if you've, if you've wondered, and because of the things that have obscured your frame of reference, significant things potentially, pain, hurt, tragedy, friends, if you've wondered, and if you've wandered, here's the last thing I, that I'd like for you to ponder. See, there will always be things that you wonder about. There will always be things. That's inevitable. That's living. God gave us this gift and, of wonderment and curiosity, and sometimes we can use it to our own detriment. But God's love for you should never, ever be one of those things. And it won't be. It won't be if you take your eyes off of the people, off of the institutions, off of the hurt and the broken promises, the things that have caused you over time to lose faith. And if you will fix your eyes on Jesus and the wonder of his love for you.